0: Good evening. Good evening and welcome. My name is Jamie Boskett. I have the privilege of serving as the president and CEO of the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. and I'm so thrilled to have you all here this evening and delighted uh, for this very special uh, evening lecture, which we are proud to be co-hosting with our friends at the American Civil War Museum, the Black History Museum and Cultural Center, and the Valentine. Uh, four institutions with shared values coming together as we mark the release of our shared friend, Dr. Ed Ayers' newest work, American Visions, the United States, 1800 to 1860. with A beautiful book cover, by the way, Ed. It's really beautiful. The early decades of the 19th century saw the expansion of slavery, native dispossession and wars with both Great Britain and Mexico. Mass immigration and powerful religious movements sent tremors through American society. But even as the powerful defended the status quo, others defied it. Voices from the margins moved the center. Eccentric visions altered the accepted wisdom. And acts of empathy questioned self-interest. Progressive ideals drove individuals like Frederick Douglass, Margaret Fuller, and many others to challenge entrenched practices and beliefs. Lydia Maria Child condemned the racism of her fellow Northerners at great personal cost. Melville and Thoreau and Joseph Smith and Samuel Morse all charted new paths for America in the realms of art, nature, belief, and technology. It was a period when bold visionaries and critics built vigorous traditions of dissent and innovation into the foundation of this nation, traditions that remain still with us today. Tonight, we're so honored to have Dr. Ed Ayers who is University Professor of Humanities and President Emeritus of University of Richmond. Through decades of distinctive scholarship, Ed has received both the Bancroft and Lincoln Prizes. He's been named National Professor of the Year, received the National Humanities Medal from the President of the United States, and served as President of the Organization of American Historians. I really could go on, but I won't, I promise. (laughs) Ed was the founding board chair of the American Civil War Museum here in Richmond, and in fact has served on the board of nearly all of the partner organizations that are collaborating to host you all this evening and has meaningfully supported each and every one of us throughout the years, for which we are very, very thankful. I know I'm joined by my colleagues, Rob Havers from Civil War Museum, Bill Martin, I see Bill back there from the Valentine, and Shakia Warren from the Black History Museum in expressing our Collective and deep appreciation, Ed, for you and your family and all you've done. Ed is an exceptional talent. He's a passionate advocate for history and he is a stalwart supporter of our community and It is our honor to have him here this evening. I wanna thank you all for supporting either one or more of these wonderful history organizations that are represented tonight and for joining us. And I hope now you will join me in a very warm welcome for our friend, Ed Ayers.
1: It's great to see everybody. Thank you so much. And uh, it's a little touching actually to think about uh, all the great times I've had working with the four museums and the great work that you all do every day. And uh, it's good of you to come out here tonight too to think about this a little bit. It's a kind of a, an unusual project. Uh, and as you'll see, it is a project, not just a book, uh, but it reflects things that I've learned from so many people in this room. American visions, I call it that because, I mean, imagine paths between the way things they are as they are and what they might become. This book is filled with people who are imagining what the United States might be. And to a remarkable extent that I didn't really realize when I started this project, so much of what the United States is was defined not at the founding, but rather in the first two thirds of the 19th century, when everything seemed to lie in the future. Our national life crystallized then from the country's borders to the nature of our politics, from its religious identity, to the themes of its literature. And Americans, built word by word a new language to explain who the united states might be now as you see we have built a website uh, to amplify the book to reveal more dimensions of the story of its title annie evans uh, up here on the right is the director of education and outreach of new american history a project based at the university of richmond that we are trying to enliven the teaching of US history in the United States. Uh, Annie is an experienced teacher, actually knows what she's doing. I have wacky ideas. And somewhere in between, new American history emerges. Our principal <clears throat> belief is that we trust teachers to know how to use resources <clears throat> for the benefit of all their students. and. I didn't know that was gonna be the applause line, but I'm glad to have it. That's that's who deserves it. Now in the 60 years chronicle in American visions, people across North America and beyond felt the rising power of the new United States. Indigenous people from the Atlantic to the Pacific confronted the armies and settlers and missionaries and agents of this expansive new nature. The imperial powers of Britain, France, and Spain reckoned with this new country's ambitions while Mexico and Canada struggled over the future of North America. Unprecedented freedom and prosperity for white American citizens flourished even as slavery and dispossession gripped millions of others. I don't know that there's ever been a period in American history where the highs were higher and the lows were lower than in these 60 years. A broadcast of characters, their lives woven together in the time they shared, shaped the volatile new nation. They had to reckon with and thus define what it meant to live in America. And the nation has faced no more fundamental questions than what power government would have over slavery. What right a powerful majority has to dispossess people of ancestral land? What right a republic has to provoke war against another republic? What political, legal, and civil rights women might possess? What rights free black people might practice? What the limits of legitimate protest might be? And what people of faith do when confronted with great social wrongs? The great books in this era speak of a country where people were thrown together with almost no controlling power other than their own appetites and restraints. When the script of American history had yet to be written, Emerson, Hawthorne, Melville, Thoreau, and Poe wrestled with the ways people were challenged and sometimes harmed by this freedom. Now I write about these well-known and much studied people from some new angles, but I also write about people at the margins who didn't really have any right to move American history, but seized it anyway. Individuals who were dismissed for their skin or their sex or their peculiarity spoke for an America of freedom and connection, of possibility and responsibility. They did so from the traditions of the Declaration of Independence, from the New Testament, from the individuality of art and literature, from traditions of African or indigenous origins, and from a recognition of the mutual dependence of the human and natural world. They spoke a language of empathy and inclusion and mutual understanding that competed with a language of exclusion and possession that emerged at the same time. Now, the young United States veered in unexpected directions in this era. It seemed impossible in 1800 that American slavery would expand over an area the size of continental Europe to become the most powerful slave empire in the modern world in only 60 years, that the demands of slaveholders would lead the United States into a war against another republic and then to a war against itself. Few white people imagined that native peoples would sustain their cultures and, and contest the power of the new nation for two more centuries. They keep and talk about the last of one one of these people, but they kept not being the last, but still being here. Only the Mormon devout could imagine that their new faith would become a global power. And few would have imagined that centuries later, okay would become the most common phrase in the world, even though it began as a typographical fad and a failed political campaign. Nobody would believe that we would still remember the tune to O Susanna, or that we would be teaching virtually all our young people, as far as I can tell, about this weird guy named Johnny Appleseed. Now, Americans had to develop familiar stories and names to tame the confusion of this era. Our textbooks and our exams commonly describe these tumultuous years as the age of Jackson, or the rise of the common man, or inevitable expansion, or... The benign second great awakening and the greatest euphemism of them all the antebellum era naming a period for something that hasn't happened yet (laughs) and avoid people thinking about it then they're laughing you get it right and since i'll build on that and point out we're always living in an antebellum era we just don't know when the war is coming and they didn't either we use antebellum to avoid saying what this was the era when slavery dominated the economy and the politics of the new nation. So we had these bland and euphemistic terms to domesticate the lurching history of the new nation, draining it of its profound change and challenge. Today, someone who would rule the United States go farther. They claim the sanction of a distorted reading of American history. They dress in the garb of the frontier and battlefront, They wave flags in defiance of democratic change. They deny or diminish the wrongs of the past and refuse reconciliation or recompense for those who were wronged. They seek to rewrite history in public schools and libraries, expunging evidence of injustice to create hollow civic pride. Today, some like to claim that we're imposing our own values on the past when we invoke ideas of justice and equality. The people of the past, they claim, simply did not know that black people or women or immigrants defended their full humanity. This is profoundly wrong and denies the historical record. The visionaries of the early US were not trapped in the innocence or blindness of a simpler time. They knew full well what they were up against and they said so, and that's what we're gonna be talking about. So we hope to show a fuller American history one that's more truly patriotic, one that evokes the nation's highest ideals of equality and respect in the face, in the recognition of, in the admission of, nation's failings, not in denial of them. So here's one example from someone you've not heard much of, probably, Lydia Maria Child. And she was raised in Maine in a working class family. She's only 20 when she wrote an anonymous novel, 1824, that becomes a big hit so she decides that she would found a magazine for children the juvenile miscellany didn't really have branding experts back there i guess right (laughs) which quickly gained grateful audiences across the united states then eager to bring in money for her new household she authored an influential book that would go through 33 editions the frugal housewife dedicated to those who are not ashamed of economy it was a book for practical women without servants who wanted to conduct their households in responsible and thoughtful ways. Then she published the girl's own book and then the mother's book. So then child and her abolitionist husband, David, child and her husband became abolitionists in 1931, after reading The Liberator. It is of no use, she wrote, to imagine what might've been if I had never met William Lloyd Garrison. Old dreams vanished, old associates departed, and all things became new. She's an accomplished and popular author at the age of 28. She decided that she would write an attack on slavery and a defense of black people. She read widely. She confronted her own prejudices and assumptions. And in the meantime, the leading journal of the time, the North American Review, says that she's the most valuable woman in the Republic because she writes these useful books. But instead, in 1833, she published and appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans. Now, Child knew that many readers of her earlier works, beloved across the country, including in the South, would reject the new book. She challenged those readers, quote, to not throw down this volume as soon as you have glanced at the title. She warned her fellow white northerners, quote, that they could not flatter ourselves that we are in reality any better than our brethren of the South. The soil and climate of the North prevents slavery from taking taking deeper root here, but the very spirit of the hateful and mischievous thing is here in all its strength. Northern prejudice against colored people, she said, is even more inveterate than it is at the South. While a slave owner might uh, treat a favored slave with kindness, as he would, she said, as a favored hound, our cold-hearted, ignoble prejudice admits of no exception, no intermission in the north she scoffed at the fear of what she called social intercourse between the different colored races black men she argued had no interest in marrying your daughters should white people she asked sarcastically keep this class of people in everlasting degradation for fear that one of their descendants may marry our great 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 grandchild the word prejudice was critical for child for the word racism would not be invented for several more generations She put it succinctly. We made slavery and slavery made prejudice. No Christian who questions his own conscience can justify himself and indulge in the feeling. The removal of this prejudice is not a matter of opinion. It is a matter of duty. When this book came out, family and friends abandoned child. The Boston Athenaeum removed her library privileges and parents canceled their subscription. To the juvenile miscellany which soon ceased to publish she and her husband would struggle with debt and poverty for decades to come she sacrificed her hard-won reputation as a female writer in the 1830s a hard thing to gain to tell the truth but her book would be foundational for the abolitionist movement for the next 30 years Now, Native Americans, like black Americans, spoke with disdain and outrage of the injustices they suffered in the new United States. William Apis, descended from both Pequot and white ancestors, gave voice to the native people of New England. A devout Methodist, in 1829, Apis published his autobiography, A Son of the Forest, and he told how he had suffered abuse as a child and neglect, and he'd left at 15 to fight for the United States in the War of 1812. But then he sought reformation and returned to his home among the Pequots. And he found there his identity and his cause. He traveled throughout New England, preaching to audiences of white, native, and black people together, fusing the language of Christianity with respect for the humanity of indigenous people. He became friends with many in the black community of Boston. In 1833, the same year that uh, Lydia Maria Child published her book, APES published An Indian's Looking Glass for the white man, imploring white people, and remember, he has a white ancestry himself, to reflect on the value they placed on what he called skin, on color. In the world of nations, Apis reminded them, white people constituted but a handful. Yet if all the peoples of the world came together in one place and each skin had its national crimes written upon it, which skin do you think would have the greatest? He asked. He gave white people a clue. Can you charge the Indians with robbing a nation almost of their whole continent and murdering their women and children? and then depriving the remainder of their lawful rights that nature and God intended them to have? And who had robbed Africa of people, quote, to till their ground and welter out their days under the lash with hunger and fatigue under the scorching rays of a burning sun? Apis confronted his readers with the words of the religion they shared. Did you ever hear or read of Christ teaching his disciples that they ought to despise one because his skin was different from theirs? Jesus Christ and his apostles certainly were not white men, he wrote. And did not he who completed the plan of salvation complete it for the whites as well as for the Jews and others? And were not the whites the most degraded people on the face of the earth at that time, he said? Apes scoffed at the phobia against so-called racial mixing. I can assure you, he said, that I know a great many that have intermarried, both of the whites and of the Indians, and many are their sons and daughters and people too of the first respectability. And yet it is illegal in Massachusetts for a clergyman or a justice of the peace, quote, to encourage the laws of God and nature by a legitimate union in holy wedlock between the Indians and whites. Now, as we can hear from Lydia Mariah Child and William Apis, the movements to end slavery and to stop native expulsion spoke to one another in a shared american language of the founding documents and of the bible the moral certainty of religious faith with the secular certainty of the declaration of independence that all people were created equal a few years later when the u.s claimed that it should possess the north american continent as a god-given right and responsibility and go to war with the republic of mexico to claim that right critics blasted the absurdity Of such claims a newspaper sneered at quote such political claptrap as our manifest destiny along with another word snare anglo-saxonism if anything was wanting to prove that this age is an age of imbecility and false philosophy said a senator it is furnished in this drivel about races the anglo saxon race and the celtic race and this race and that race seem to be the latest discovery of the present time to account for all moral social and political phenomena this new theory is founded neither on christianity nor philosophy so the very time this language of race is emerging people are saying this is nonsense there is no such thing as race there is skin albert gallatin elderly former advisor to thomas jefferson and other presidents warned against he called the extraordinary assertion that quote the people of the united states have an hereditary superiority of race over the mexicans which gives them the right to subjugate and keep in bondage the inferior nation the united states he reminded his fellow americans had been founded as a model republic based on the truth that all people had the capacity for self-government the new nation had adopted the ideas and institution of the English, not because the English were pure Anglo-Saxon, but because ways of invasion and immigration had created the English. Allegations of superiority of race and destiny, Gallatin bitterly warned, are but pretenses under which to disguise ambition, cupidity, or silly vanity. Other Americans, challenged the emerging United States to live up to its own ideals when it came to the place of women. In 1848, the Declaration of Sentiments produced at Seneca Falls, New York, framed itself from the beginning with these words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal. In churches and fraternal organizations and reform bodies, black women and men were allies, and they called for equality. The masthead of Frederick Douglass's North Star proclaimed that, quote, Right is of no sex. Truth is of no color. God is the father of us all and all our brethren. 1840s. Equality for women, equality for people of color. In the meantime, Susan Fenimore Cooper and George Perkin Marsh wrote with love of the American landscape. But warned of a is the, These are the first great works of American environmentalism. Susan Fenimore Cooper, daughter of James Fenimore Cooper, she wrote a great book, Rural Hours, that Charles Dickens read in 1850. To, and she's talking about the responsibility that we have to the land. George Perkins Marsh, who spoke 20 languages, gave a talk in 1847, he says, everybody knows that the climate is getting warmer and that the result of it is because we're clearing all these trees, Uh, we should think about this. So global warming was identified as early as the 1840s. He gave that talk to fellow farmers, of which he was one at a a fair in Vermont. But it was not only political activists who challenged the United States to live up to its possibilities. Writers and artists dared to confront America in all its complexity and confusion. They celebrated freedom of thought and expression. They experimented boldly in the Scarlet Letter or Moby Dick and the stories and poems of Richmond's own Edgar Allan Poe. Female authors such as Margaret Fuller and Fanny Fern cast aside conventions to write bold works. They were the creators of American culture precisely because they ignored convention. It's interesting to think about the people that we teach as the classic American writers couldn't sell a book at the time, right? Moby Dick, Herb Melvin made $535 off Moby Dick, now considered the greatest American novel, right? But why is it great? It's because he looked at the complexity of what democracy meant and what dangers it confronted directly in the face america is a poem in our eyes ralph waldo emerson proclaimed as we will see in a video we'll show in a minute it's ample geography dazzles the imagination and will not wait long for meters walt whitman rose to emerson's challenge he wrote poetry for everyone of everyone there was no formal scheme to bind his words no arcane or foreign vocabulary no allusions to classical works that only the educated would know instead he composed lists in no descending or ascending order. To read Whitman was to walk on the streets and docks of New York in the 1850s, to see without judging, to celebrate oneself as a way of celebrating all selves. Sex was capacious for Whitman, with love for men and women, for touch as well as devotion, for longing as well as fulfillment. He accepted it all, was grateful for it all. He worshipped the everyday i see something of god each hour of the 24 and each moment then in the faces of men and women i see god and in my own face in the glass i find letters from god dropped in the street and every one is signed by god's name and i'll leave them where they are for i know that others will punctually come forever and ever in the meantime even in the midst of these democratic visions slavery ate away american life and culture and politics like a cancer by the late 1850s americans had consumed themselves with contempt for one another no words were too harsh to say no assault in the halls of government too extreme the political system fragmented under the pressure no nothing bigotry against immigrants won them offices in the north while the democrats viciously turned on one another opening the door for a new Republican Party to win the presidency with less than 40% of the votes, all of it from the North. In the chaos, frozen out of the major parties, the opponents of slavery appealed beyond politics. Frederick Douglass noted with amazement that the sentimental songs of Stephen Foster helped create what Douglass called, quote, sympathies for the slave." Artists who rejected caricature to paint black men and women in their full humanity changed white people's hearts before it changed their minds or votes. Paintings by William Sidney Mount and Eastman Johnson, reproduced and, dis- and by the thousands in lithographs all across America, portrayed black Americans with dignity and pride. The black artist who painted the portrayal of Cincinnati as the cover of American Visions, Robert Duncanson, was celebrated in Europe began as a house painter and taught himself how to paint. I appreciated Jamie's endorsement of the beautiful cover, 1851, Robert Duncanson. Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's cabin held a power hard to imagine now. When the bound book appeared in two volumes in the spring of 1852, three power presses worked uh, they, uh, around the clock and a 100 bookbinders. back then you had to, had to silence Saw these books together, uh, worked to labor to meet the demand. By the end of the year, Americans bought 300,000 copies and the British had bought a million. Henry James recalled Uncle Tom's Cabin quote as his first encounter with grown up fiction. It was less a book than a state of vision, of feeling and consciousness in which actual people walked and talked and laughed and cried. We might forget the power of the imagination. Of literature but this was a way that white people actually could imagine enslaved people walking and laughing and crying and being real now the book was not political in the ways we might imagine stowe disdained what she called the dead sea of respectable churches and the cult of business that ruled america she had nothing good to say of politicians or of those who upheld the sanctity of the union as a reason to tolerate slavery and accept the fugitive slave law. She warned her fellow Christians that, quote, the day of vengeance would arrive with God's judgment for the great sin that they tolerated in their midst. A young black woman, Frances Ellen Watkins, spoke across the North to raise money for the Underground Railroad. Make yes. Oh. Keep going. Nope. I'll talk about it after we see it.
0: Wherever you will, in a lowly plain or a lofty hill, make it among earth's humblest graves, but not in a land where men are slaves. I'd shudder and start if I heard the bay of bloodhounds seizing their human prey, and I heard the captive pleading is found bound afresh fresh his golden chain. If I saw young no girls from their mother's arms bartered and sold for their youthful charms, my eye would flash with a mournful flame. I ask no monument, proud and high, to arrest the gaze of the passers-by all that my yearning spirit craves is bearing me not in a land of slaves
1: so this is one of five videos that uh, our friends at Field Studios based in Richmond uh, made Uh, we have this beautiful one William Apis that I spoke before uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, uh, black men mobilizing uh, for the vote and Susan Fenimore Cooper that I uh, mentioned before. Uh, all the scenes are actually set in Richmond and Colonel Williamsburg. So you can watch them both for it. You can see how powerful that was. I kind of resent uh, how powerful that was. I'm up here yakking away and <laughs> immediately with that. Um, but you can see how powerful they are. And why would we do this? This whole site is trying to lower the scrim between young people, especially, in this distant past. To make them realize that these people actually lived and breathed and were as real as they are. A lot of them were young. A lot of them had no authority to say the things that they did, but she sold 12,000 copies of her book of poetry when she's out on the lecture stage, raising money for the Underground Railroad. We also connect into more than 100 of the original sources. You've seen some of them what Annie has been showing in which people can say, students can say, well, i like to see for myself, what did the rest of that pamphlet, the rest of that book have to say? As you can see, this is, it's a complex thing. And just like we trust teachers, we trust kids. We cannot hide the truth from them. Let's try to see if we can't share it in a more honest and, and welcoming way. And then uh, there's one more part of this that I'll talk about a little bit later. But this thing about Francis Ellen Watkins, 1858, Bury Me in a Free Land. Listening to Watkins, one audience member wrote, there swept over me in a chill wave of horror the realization that this noble woman might have been sold on the auction block to the highest bidder. Female writers and speakers such as Watkins evoke sympathies for the slaves in ways that men could not, and black people in ways white people could not and poetry in ways that prose could not. A final scene captures the way that people beyond the political sphere held America to humane ideals. The same Lydia Mariah Child, I told you about you before, 25 years after she published her defense of black people, had no reason to expect a response when she wrote to Governor Wise of Virginia to ask if she might be able to come and comfort John Brown after his aborted raid, 1859. Child and her husband had fallen ever deeper into debt after their failed attempt to grow sugar beets so that people could have sugar without having to have the eat the sugar produced by enslaved people in Louisiana. She no longer edited a newspaper and had broken ties with some of her former allies in the abolitionist movement, but she thought she might comfort Brown in some way. Why, Governor Wise wrote in a condescending response, he considered gallant, should you not be allowed, Madame, he would personally protect her, even though she sought to com- comfort, quote, one who whetted knives of butchery for our mothers, sisters, daughters, and babes. He was so proud of his response, he sent it to the newspapers. And so Lydia, Mariah Child suddenly found herself with the national audience again. She's ready. She responded to Governor Wise saying, the white South has been brutal and against anyone, she said, who happened to have black, brown, or yellow complexion. The South had denied any recourse other than violence since Southern politicians had gagged petitions, ran through the fugitive slave law, applauded the beating of Charles Sumner in the US Senate, and violated democracy in Kansas. She wrote, the people of the North had a very strong attachment to the union, she said, but you have weakened it beyond all power of restoration. If the South wished to secede, as it so often threatened, it might be for the best. The wife of Virginia's U.S. Senator James Mason joined Governor Wise in the public exchange. He wrote to; she wrote to Child as a fellow woman. "You would soothe with sisterly and motherly care the hoary-headed murderer of Harper's Ferry," Margaretta Mason exclaimed. The hypocrisy of the abolitionists infuriated her. Would you stand by the bedside of an old Negro dying of a hopeless disease to alleviate his sufferings as far as humans could? Did you ever set up until the wee hours to complete a dress for a motherless child that she might appear on Christmas in a new one? The slave-owning women of the South, Mason said, do these and more for our servants. And why? Because we endeavor to do our duty in that state of life it has placed God to please us. us. Child replied, it would be extremely difficult to find any woman in our villages who does not sew for the poor and watch with the sick whenever occasion requires, she said. As for Christmas dresses, we pay our domestic wages that they can buy their own dresses and don't have to accept them for charity. And she says, and after we have helped them, after we have helped the mothers, we did not sell their babies. This became a pamphlet that sold tens of thousands to raise money. The new nation lacked the resilience in these years to weather the long building crisis that threatened to engulf everyone and everything. No one could find the language to imagine a union that was not divided. Americans had exhausted their goodwill their patience, their trust, and empathy over the preceding decades. They consumed themselves with vituperation, not only politically, but on many fronts, so that the only honest language seemed the language of resentment and distrust, of cynicism and suspicion. Fantasies of violence suffered and inflicted filled imaginations. The new network of partisan newspapers and telegraph lines and political patronage spun over the preceding 15 years amplified bitter rhetoric into every American community. Americans bluffed and boasted and threatened themselves into a war that no one wanted and that killed the equivalent of 8 million people today. As the war came, however, and hundreds of thousands died, the visionaries sustained visions that allowed emancipation to redeem that war even though they were attacked for being unrealistic and unpatriotic they held true to the ideals of equality and fairness and the rule of law when the partisan politics had become corrupt and broken there are sources of power and influence that run always beneath the surface of history as you have heard the histories the visions i explore are passionate sometimes dangerous and often lonely, bridges between the political and the personal. But together, if we listen to them, we can see a charged and open hidden history that our own time might listen to, that there is potential and dangers that we can perceive to which we must be alert. So we built an American vision site to emphasize the humanistic side of history. As you've seen, the cinematic videos capture the look and feel of a time and place. Each brief video, really in just a minute, it's amazing, recreates a world, a drama. The connections to the hundred ritual resources on which the book draws opens the door to a broader and deeper understanding. The internet archive has scanned all these and made them available free to everybody. So rather than presenting students with little excerpts with lots of ellipses before and after, carefully chosen to say exactly what we wish the books had said. Instead, let's ask students to find the patterns in the books. And he's made a great resources where uh, you can read Walden in the internet archive, then you can read the version that the artificial intelligence made of Walden, kind of a paraphrase of Walden. And then you can ask the students, what's gained and lost in this? What's, gained if, what's lost if you have the computer do your homework? Can you speak in this kind of language? This is a part of the learning resources Annie has made that cover all the expanse of American history that we share freely every day. We don't ask anybody to sign in. We don't ask for anybody's email. We're not selling anybody anything. We don't have a political position. It's like, here are exciting new ways that all this technology is enabling. And Annie's orchestrating it, working with allies across the country to share all that. My own contribution to this is that a travel log, uh, places where history happened between 1800 and 1860 in the United States. My wife, Abby, bless her heart, was willing to get into an RV with me and travel to 24 states and 60 sites um, with somebody who'd never driven an RV before. I'm sure that (laughs) she's covered now. And what we found in this travel log is that you can see that history is all around us. And what we found wherever we went we did we just showed up to see what everybody else could see it turned out there are heroes in every community in America who every day are keeping alive the memory of history and explaining it to whoever shows up in whatever way they need people like those of the four museums represented here tonight that in the past there were books written about the lies told across america and about all the evasions and what we found were everywhere we went people were trying to tell the truth and doing so in ways that insulted nobody and didn't insult the in, the intelligence of any visitor and you could watch kids just their eyes wide as they're watching all this it i never lost faith in museums and libraries and historic sites but after seeing all these across the United States, I felt it even more powerfully. So together, the book and this companions share a message. We can have both forthcoming honesty about our past and inspiring heroes. We simply need to quote Joseph Rogers of this very institution. And I told, I took this line from him. And I'm glad you're attributed to him now. We'd simply need Better heroes, those who confronted the injustices of their own time with the American ideals of equality and compassion and justice and tolerance. We need to celebrate those who embodied our founding principles of universal equality, of freedom of conscience and expression, of principled dissent, of the separation of church and state, of a democracy that welcomes everyone. Those principles have often been best expressed then and now by the subjected and the neglected and the forgotten. We need to pay attention to their wisdom and their example and their encouragement to live up to our nation's highest ideals. So thanks very much. Let's hear what you all have, want to talk about. I'm happy to to do that. Thank you. You're very kind. All right, save some of that energy to raise your hand and ask me an interesting but answerable question. Yes. I was just wondering if you could share a little more insight into the struggle going on in the South in antebellum America, (laughs) leading up in the Christian church, because I know, for example, The Presbyterian denomination split, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, between Northern and Southern over the issue of slavery. So did the Methodist and Baptist. Must've been heated debates. I mean, what was going on? What sort of theological positions did they take up and so forth? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's in the 1840s. What's striking is if you actually read the people, like the young woman, the video that we saw, and if you listen to uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, that even though the churches divided, the churches did not put their weight behind anti-slavery. In many ways, the northern churches just kind of washed their hands of their fellowship with the southern churches. And the southern churches found in the Bible and in their faith what they thought was the greatest rationalization for slavery there was. And so that the common language of Americans was Protestant Christianity, um, but... It became a source of certainty among white Southerners that the Bible never explicitly critiqued slavery. And that you heard in the quote from the Senator's wife, God has put us in this responsibility to take care of it. So religion is everywhere in this period. I could give another whole lecture about all the different ways, including the creation of the most rapidly expanding religious faith in the world of Mormonism created precisely because what we celebrate the second great awakening of all these revivals they look around and said why are we wasting all energies competing with each other to see who can get to different congregations between the presbyterians and the methodists instead we should be thinking about what unites us right and then of course the great bigotry against catholics who came in the 1840s and the 1850s but everybody that i quote believed that they were acting from inspiration especially from the new testament i would say the people who moved american history the most were the quakers who who said simply my faith tells me that our souls are all equal and it doesn't matter what sex we are or what skin color we have so it's an enormously complicated story Um, i do believe that the um The churches provided great resources when the north is going into the war uh, that people are sustained by their Christian faith. Uh, But so were the Confederates. And so it's that's that's the that's the honest answer. I I wish it were more more cheerful, but uh, that is the case. So. I'll just stop. That's the answer. What else we got? That was harder than I was asking for. What else do we have? <laughs> We're ready. Here we go. So, uh, so you've been talking wonderfully about uh, social factors. Uh, this is a time of great technology, though. The railroads, the canals, all this push to conquer the land. is it Was that an overpowering influence as well? I write a lot about that. I'm very interested in all that. It's interesting that we don't really have the networks of those things until the very last decade of this period. Um, you know, they invent the telegraph and you know uh, debut it in the mid 1840s. But not surprisingly, it takes a while to build. <laughs> a national network of, of a telegraph. I find that story fascinating. The same thing is true with the railroads, is that in the 1830s, they start building them, but it's not until after uh, the, in the 1850s that you start having real um, networks of it. So the war with Mexico, mid-1840s is the first war in the world is reported through telegraph, but that still involves carrying it by ship, you know, from Mexico to New Orleans, and then, uh, so the, the networks aren't finished. I think that and the canals are uh, probably the most powerful new technology that transform all this. They start earliest and probably sort of lift the most weight. Um, And I kind of hinted at this near the end, ironically, those new networks of communication and transportation enable the division between the north and the south. The north and the south don't really exist. You know, that people can't really imagine until you start being able to take a train to Chicago from New York. Right. That kind of creates the north. Um, And that why is Richmond the capital of this new Confederacy? Because five railroad lines converge here. Right. Uh, Congratulations. (laughs) You get to be the object of the entire Civil War as a result of all this. So so I love, you know, in the book as a whole, uh, I celebrate innovation and invention uh and 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 our in our tours of the places we go we go to places where these things happen um and of course historians have debated you'd be shocked to know uh about was capitalism uh in opposition to slavery or were they deeply tied together and the answer is yes um (laughs) in both those ways so you know, one thing to think about is that I've been railing against this in my earlier work for a long time, this fantasy that the Civil War was a conflict between a modern North and an agrarian South, which we like because it lets everybody off the hook. The North is progress. We're the future. Uh, The South, yeah, what do you expect? We were agrarian. But unfortunately, the 4 million people held in perpetual bondage. The movement of 2 million people in slavery Is enabled by the same steamships and railroads you know the the massive movement into texas and why would the south secede they would say that because they wouldn't say these exact words we're like the oil producing nations of today we have a monopoly on the single most valuable commodity in the world who is going to rise against us and why is it so valuable because we've been able to master these new technologies of transport to to take all this cotton to liverpool to uh, be manufactured so as you weave all these stories together and you see that the intrinsic story of invention and innovation is just as stirring as we think the consequences and again doesn't you you can everybody can hear that I'm saying it sounds a lot like the internet right it's a lot of the same networks that seem so revelatory and, and it's a much bigger change than the internet you think about before the telegraph information can move exactly as fast as a horse or the wind after this it moves instantly that's a bigger change than anything that we've experienced think about railroads too before this you can go exactly as fast as a wind or a horse now you can move so rapidly so what you see in all of this is people are reckoning with these things and their consequences uh, at the same time all these other issues are going on so Historians like to put things in different boxes and just talk about them one at a time. What I'm trying to do in this brief book is what if we didn't do that, but put all of them woven together in time, just like we live. I don't know about you, but I don't go, "Okay, I think I'll now live economic history. Uh, Then at uh, two o'clock, I'll start living cultural history. Uh, They're all tied together. So we'll pretend that was a good answer to your question. All right. What else we got? They gave time to come up with another question. I see two up here on the near the front. Ed, yes, oh, I'm sorry. I hear my name, but I don't see where I'm looking. I'm I'm in the back. Okay. Um, recently, in the newspaper, it was reported that a person complained that uh, Senator Kane ought not to be senator because he and his wife voted opposite to each other on the casino vote. I heard that, yeah. So I don't know how far we have come, but could, could you comment on the conflict between Douglas uh, and the um, women's movement, uh, if you would, please? Yeah, I like the way you pivoted there at the end. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, The books I've written before uh, start basically with 1859 and come up to the 20th century. And, you know, I'm running out of time. How How many more books do I have in me? Why would I choose to write about this period, which seems, well, antebellum, you know? And it seems like hoop skirts and plaid vests. And, you know, it's because it was then that the very issues that you're talking about were crystallized, and we still speak the same language, just like we still say, okay, which stood for old kinderhook, but also stood for a misspelling on purpose of all correct. And now we just say, okay, I have my wife, bless her heart again, watching any foreign movie with me. Look, they say, okay, again, and they did. (laughs) The debate that you just heard that you referred to, I'm gonna walk back into it, uh, is a reflection of the fact that the language of politics, and many ways of gender and of what we call race are the same language that was invented at the time. There's not really been that much of of innovation in the ways that Americans uh, express themselves on these issues. So it's like the cycle returning over and over again. So I thought, hey, let's go back to the beginning. And the beginning, not to offend anybody, but is not the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, which were just kind of sketches for a nation, But this is when the nation becomes the United States and the language that crystallized them. So it's like a, you know, uh, a volcano or, you know, capturing people when they're moving. It's still the language we speak today. So the controversy uh, that you referred to is it's not surprising. It's because so if he can't even control his own household, I think I remember that being the quote uh how can he have the authority to be helping run the country uh you hear a lot of the same language that was then just being recycled and rediscovered as if it's new so we'll pretend that that was an answer to your question as well have some here so the preface mentions uh pt barnum a a long list of august figures right and then i looked in the index and he gets a couple pages I'm just wondering how why you wanted to include P.T. Barnum. Oh, I got all kinds of people like that in there. Uh, P.T. Barnum. It goes right to what I was just saying. He invents American showmanship, and the whole idea of uh, Buncombe of being able to. I know you know, and I know that I'm I'm fooling you with this illusion. That I've created the Fiji Mermaid, which is really a body of a fish and a head of a monkey sewn together, right? Uh, which is the, the first great American uh, feature of attraction, uh, and he invents this whole language of salesmanship and showmanship that's based on shared illusion. That uh, and so. I admire him. I mean, he's got guts to do all these kind of things and gets away. I, I, I treat him a little sarcastically because he then publishes an the autobiography, which becomes a bestseller. At the end of the autobiography, he, he says, I know <laughs> that in my earlier life, I did stuff like the Fiji Mermaid and claimed that the, this woman was the uh, enslaved nurse of George Washington and that she's 180 years old. Uh, and we know that's not true. But now look at me. I'm a person of great rectitude i i'm I'm a teetotaler and all this and then he was shocked that people liked the first part of the book and didn't believe the second part and so in one moment of very light sarcasm that i have in the book i say that uh, his feelings hurt uh he went to europe and went on tour and made millions of dollars Uh, so so I love all these people, you know. Johnny Appleseed, for example, is there's all these people I never, I, I kind of knew about. I've, I'm from, I'm from where Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone are from. That's really not that you can hear it in my accent or anything, but that's where, um, and we, we went to Davy Crockett's birthplace. And I learned all about David Crockett. He didn't do any of the things that we thought he did. And it just occurs to me, too, there's slight sarcasm there, too, where I, I we just came back from Texas and the Alamo, where David Crockett is everywhere. And I point out that he lived in Texas exactly long enough to get killed. You, you know, so all of this stuff, even though I realize that. You can hear the moral purpose behind the book. History is also just funny and it's got all these humans in it, who were doing all these very human things. So I like to celebrate the railroads and the telegraphs, but also just the people who were just outrageous in doing these wacky things. All the great David Crockett almanacs came out after he was dead. And the whole idea of him wearing his coonskin cap and all that just made up by guys in New York who are writing this stuff. So it's like P.T. Barnum, there's a whole culture of showmanship and all this, which I kind of like. but it's woven into the fabric of the country. So that's why I have P.T. Barnum. All right, now that's the kind of question I like that lets me actually say something mildly amusing. Okay, do we have another question? Excuse me, um, because my thoughts are not well developed on this issue, but I'm wondering about um, the power of rationalization in some of the most grandiose moments of American history. In this particular area, I'm wondering about manifest destiny. Uh, Would you comment on my thought about that? That seemed very well formed to me. Uh, Yeah, and that was the quote from Mariah Child about where does racism come from? We create slavery. Racism is great rationalization for the injustice that people are suffering, right? In many ways that, um, and it's human, I mean, we all do it. So, it, But when you see it on a social level, what it is rationalization. So rationalization, it manifest destiny. And I think that word catches on, that phrase catches on part because it's internal rhyme. It, it sort of said manifest destiny. It sounds like it makes sense. Uh, manifest being obvious, uh, that it is obvious to us that God is intended for us to dominate the continent, not because, but for good, because we bring progress and law and the railroads and the telegraph and prosperity. And so it's unfortunate that we actually have to go to war against a Republic that's actually abolished slavery in the name of freedom that we're going to expand freedom by creating one of the largest slave states in 15 years by the time of the civil war texas has 160,000 people held in slavery and that, that they're only you know that's only 15 years really from the time that they are brought into the united states and yet the manifest destiny looks past slavery to a white vision Of progress and prosperity so the reason i quote this is that how quickly people recognize that it is just a rationalization but it doesn't stop the united states from doing it and the party that opposes the mexican war the whigs end up nominating generals from the mexican war as their presidential candidates if you want to talk about a rationalization there we go so there's two ways you can look at this one all these people are hypocrites All these people are, you know, fundamentally wrong. And you can believe that and say, I wonder if there's anything that we're rationalizing today. So this book is full of heroes, but not really that many villains, because... We all rationalize, that's in many ways the way history works. I sometimes think about, you know, what would people 50 years from now think about the things that we tolerate, the things that we're saying? So when I'm saying that these people have wisdom for us, the wisdom is very often, are you doing something kind of like this yourself? Are you rationalizing and picking and choosing the parts of the American heritage that serve your interest or your self-identity? Or are you thinking about really living up to what it would mean for all people to be created equal? So I think that the most useful talent or requirement for a historian is humility. We're not better than these people. We're not wiser or smarter than, we are, than they are. They confronted a different history than we did. What they had to teach us is only when we get off our hobby horse and imagine somehow that we're better and say, I don't know, if i have been in her shoes, what would I have done? If I'd been a slaveholding woman, would I not have believed that God put me here to take good care of the people in my charge? For some reason, you know, very few white Southerners, the great majority of whom are Christian, opposed secession secession could be the greatest rationalization of american history right so you you hear yes you're right manifest destiny is one of them but people could see through it but in some ways if you've got the bigger canon uh it doesn't really matter then you can rationalize that it was always god's will or it was just a natural work of progress or there were just more of us than them and it's inevitable I think the hard thing for historians, especially this period, is to, and we think about words like expansion. It's not take all this as inevitable. The book sometimes people have asked me why 1800. Beyond the fact that it's a nice round number, <laughs> well, the book begins with visions of American Indians Tecumseh and his brother Tenskwatawa, who believed that if they all join together the way that all the white Americans join together, that they can stop this expansion into their ancestral lands. And their vision is that we should give up the things that we have taken from the white people, sometimes eagerly, sometimes imposed upon us. And if those people had triumphed in alliance with the largest, most powerful empire in the world at the time, the British, with whom they are allied, all of American history would have been different. If Andrew Jackson had not won the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, at which Abby and I just visited, or the Battle of New Orleans, all of American history would have been different. So we need to take it apart, look at it as it's unfolding, and look at what they're rationalizing, and not make history itself a rationalization for ourselves. You know? To make it open-ended and kind of risky, we're thinking about, maybe a little uncomfortable. I think maybe we'd all do better if we rationalize less of our lives and and sort of confronted every once in a while, uh, the larger situation in which we find ourselves. I'm thinking one of the situations is it's probably seven o'clock. I'm just guessing. Uh, How about that for a pivot? Um, And wait, wait, I know you're glad that I'm done. But the fact is, I just want to thank you all for coming out here again. I wanna thank you for your support for these four wonderful museums. Uh, I wanna thank you for um, being interested enough to think about how we got to where we are, that you come listen to a talk about such a long ago time. I'd like to thank Annie for making these incredible resources that we're able to share. I will share with you that field studio films, are the principals are a young woman named Hannah Ayers and her husband, Lance Warren, who made these beautiful films from Churchill. Um, And I feel like this is a a remarkable responsibility to try to tell this story honestly in a way that welcomes people into it, that removes some of the distance between us and the past and maybe allows us to see ourselves a little more clearly. Mm -hmm. Now you can applaud. Thanks so Uh much, (laughs) everyone.